Hi, this is Will Higgins. It's Wednesday, October 7th. Welcome to Footnotes, the weekly podcast from the Dartmouth High School English Department. Each week on Footnotes, we'll be talking to a different English teacher from the Dartmouth High School English Department. We'll be talking to them about what it's like to teach during the pandemic, how they became a teacher, some of the interesting things they're doing right now, and what makes them human. This week's guest is English teacher Anne Fifield. We'll be right back. Here we are with longtime English teacher Anne Fifield. We'll be asking her the same questions we asked of Jesse Grieve and, and John Karen. Uh, so, first, Anne, tell us what you teach in the English department and how long have you been teaching and how long at DHS specifically? Okay, well, right now I'm teaching um, mostly juniors. I've been teaching mostly juniors for a long time. So I teach um, inclusion classes, I teach honors classes for juniors, and I also, right now, I'm teaching the seminar class that has both juniors, but a surprising number of 10th graders as well. So you've been teaching juniors for um, many, many years at Dartmouth yeah. High School. Um, is there something specific you like about teaching, teaching juniors? Is it oh. the curriculum or is it the age? Um, it's both. I mean, when, when I first came here, it was strictly British curriculum, right? And, and I loved it because I, I love to travel and I, I find it interesting to know where our language came from and how it has evolved. So um, that was the beginning of it. But there's also the age factor. You know, the kids are, the, they can still cop an attitude. Um, they're not as willing to do whatever you ask, like a little puppy, like maybe the ninth graders would do. <laughs> but they're, you know, they're kind of at this moment of liminality where they're jumping off to adulthood and um, a lot of them appreciate learning things about what's coming next. Last year we did a, a unit where we brought in actual applications, to, I think it was to McDonald's, but these kids had never talked about what it is to fill out an application and why it's important. They were so thankful. It was really amazing. So, you know, the kids that are planning to go on to college, um, I really enjoyed teaching them how to do good research and argue and such like that. I love that idea of bringing an application to the classroom. I mean, one of the things I think that you do so well is kind of bring really practical, concrete ideas into your class. You know, you talk a lot about current events. Um, in your class and about your travels. I mean, I know you, you already mentioned, but you do travel a lot. I do. And your kids are all, you know, far-flung <laughs> travelers and they, they, um, they're very, very intrepid themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you have something in your class that you do weekly, right, with current events? Yeah, we were doing it today, in fact. It's called World Wednesday. And so I encourage the kids, first of all, I encourage them to be ritual consumers of news, which a lot of them aren't. They don't receive newspapers or magazines at home. They don't watch television with their parents. Um, 
but there are different ways. So we talk about, you, you know, you could have Twitter download the headlines, you could have Facebook give you the headlines, you could go right to a, a website for a news agency. And I encourage them to look at, you know, high quality news, New York Times always. Um, and those that speak another language, I really encourage them to look at foreign news uh, agencies too, because they get a different angle on everything that's happening in our country. Um, they learn things that we don't know sometimes, so. What was one of the big things that came up today, news-wise? A lot of people were talking about Trump's um, coronavirus and the debates coming up. Um, today's debate, whether or not they thought it would be more interesting or as interesting as the last debate with the two presidential candidates. Um, someone talked about flooding in France today. Um, yeah, that was about it. The, the AP kids were really on top of the news, which didn't surprise me. That's great, and I think that students still have a free subscription to the New York Times. I know they got it in the spring, and I'm, we just found out a couple weeks ago that it's actually carried over now for another year. That's great. I yeah. would actually like to get more information on that. Yeah. So that I could give it to the kids. All right, so kind of changing gears a little bit. Um, maybe you can tell us how you became a teacher, because I know that, like myself, you didn't start off as a teacher. You were doing something, actually quite a really a few really interesting things first. Yeah. Um, and, and what did you do before uh, becoming a teacher? Okay, well, I started working as a teacher in 1983 when I had been an exchange student in Brazil for just a summer and I knew, I was just starting to make sense of Portuguese and I was on the plane home and I did two years of, I was pre-med, two years at a small private university in St. Paul, Minnesota and um, I really wanted to, to learn Portuguese. So I decided to take off after two years of college, go back to Brazil. I worked for a while before that. And I went back to Brazil and spent the year. So I spent part of the time with my host family, part of the time with other people that I had met in the meantime, living with their families in Rio. And then it was kind of getting intense in Rio for people. Like I had to walk over people sleeping in the streets to get home at night. I was teaching English at an English school. Um, I actually had a funny day where, I think I talked about that with you guys, about Ronnie Biggs. He was the accomplice from the great train robbery. Oh yeah, I do remember you telling us that story. Yeah, so I mean he came in and told, you know, a very colorful, I won't say it now in case kids are watching, but a joke. And then I found out who it was, and I'm like, wow, this is crazy. So, I mean, I was interacting with people that were criminals, um, interacting with people that were escaped Nazis that wow. were also in Brazil. This guy, he used to pretend that he was um, Scottish. And we were, you know, at this lake, this man-made lake way out in the middle of nowhere, and, and he had a, a little restaurant bar thing. And he's talking to us, and he's, you know, I'm like, that is not a Scottish accent. That is a German accent. The guy's eyes were bright blue. I'm like, this guy's a Nazi. Hmm. Bingo, right there. Anyway, so um, I did that for a while. And then I came back and did some more university. Um, I, I transferred from Hamlin to the University of Minnesota where I could continue with the Portuguese. And so I got my degree in Latin American studies. As part of that degree, I went back to Brazil and studied at the Catholic University there. And um, I had met my husband, who was my boyfriend before that. He's Brazilian. 
and you know we had I, I joke that we had our seven year itch before we got married <laughs> so we you know we dated and broke up and dated and broke up and then finally we decided to get married um, but then after I graduated from college with a degree in Latin American studies I was working as a legal assistant I was real before I was a research assistant for a rural sociology professor at the University of Minnesota so I had to I had to deal with computer stuff that I could not get my head wrapped around. It was the craziest thing. And this was, was probably the 1980s, right? This was in the 80s, and this is when they had the cards with the holes in them still. Yeah. I was like, oh my god. But I, he, he was a guy that specialized in um, teen work and, and comparing it to like education and what was happening to them socially within their communities. It was a really interesting project that went for years. But I was really living paycheck to paycheck, and I'm like, ah. My sister-in-law said, why don't you try being a legal assistant? So I sent out my information to a lot of people. Um, it helped that I spoke Portuguese at that point pretty well. And I had a pretty good understanding of Spanish. So I could say that I was conversant in Spanish, but fluent in Portuguese. And I got a call from one of the law firms saying that they needed someone that, um, I remember that the ad said, we, um, some travel required, so I thought they wanted someone with a car that worked, right? <laughs> I could do that, I could do that interview. And the woman's going on about, oh yeah, you know, half the law firm is in San Juan, and I thought, some travel required, okay, that's <laughs> not my car. So I decided to take this job as a legal assistant for a fire litigation firm, and, and the, the main attorney was Jim Federley, famous um, fire litigator, and they just needed a lot of bodies. We had a hotel that we were responsible for and we had to manage, I think it was three million documents we were in charge of. We had to read all of them. First up, we had to get them out of this water-soaked hotel, or yeah, hotel, because it had been, you know, there was a fire there. And so it was gross. There were animals inside the boxes. It was just, ugh. But, um, yeah, and we had to read them and number them. And then we had this list of interrogatories and we would have to put the right document under the right letter of the interrogatory, copy them three times, and then put them all in numerical order after we had shipped them all into different positions. Wow. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, anyway, so I did that for about three years. So I lived in San Juan for about a year and a half doing that. And I would sit at, I would sit at tables like with F. Lee Bailey. You know, he'd be at a deposition. And I remember one time, I don't know if I said this to you guys before, I remember sitting at this deposition table, and it was, what, it was a big one. They were deposing the woman who was in charge of house cleaning. So third-party defendants, they were trying to pin things on the third-party defendants, like the flammability and the toxicity of the gases that were off-gassing when, when, you know, when the fire happened. And so, you know, they had people like Johnson & Johnson at the table because of the floor wax and the laminates from North Carolina, and I learned more about uh, about um, polyurethane foam, and I mean, it's crazy. And how when you go to a hotel, you should never stay above the fifth floor because hmm. the fire ladders can't reach you after really? the fifth floor. Yeah. So you're on your own if you're on the fifth yeah. floor. Yeah, above the fifth. Anyway, so I did that. And then um, my husband was coming up to Minnesota to do his PhD. We weren't married yet, my boyfriend at the time. And I asked to, things were winding down in the law suit, and I asked to transfer back to the Minneapolis office so that we could be at the same place at the same time. The rest is history, you know. 
he got his PhD, we got married, we had two kids. And then, while I was there, after things were winding down at the law firm, um, I decided to get a degree that I could use anywhere in the world. So I did a, a post-bac program for English secondary education. Um, it was a 15-month thing. All of the classes, all of the student, student um, what do you call it? Observations. No. When you are a student and you go into the classroom, what do we call that? Oh, the student teaching. Student teaching. That's the word. I was going to say student training. So yeah, the student teaching, all the 15 months. And uh, so I thought, you know, maybe I'll use it, maybe not. But after my husband finished his, his program and he got his PhD, we, I had promised him that we would move to Brazil. But he got this awesome meatball of a job at UCLA. And I'm the one who, I'm responsible for this, because I'm like, you know, you should practice applying for a job that you don't really want. So he did, and they <laughs> loved him. I'm like, oh my God. I was like out to here with Zach. It was crazy. So we moved across country, two weeks postpartum, with all our stuff, and Dario's thinking, what the hell am I doing to my family? Um, he taught there. I had two little kids. Ian was at a Montessori school. Zach was at home with me. And then we moved to Brazil. We, oh, and then we moved back to Minnesota so he could finish his dissertation. So it was before that. Right. He finished, he was, he was all but the dissertation when he went to California. Then we went back to Duluth. I subbed because I had, you know, that teaching thing in my back pocket. And, um, and he finished his dissertation. Then he defended it. Then we moved to Brazil. And I thought that I wasn't going to teach. But when I went to the American school to visit, and I wanted my kids to be able to go there so they would keep up on their English, it was more expensive to spend to send one kid there than I would make in a year, or wow. that Dario would make in a year really? doing what he was going to do. So I thought, oh, this, you know, this is not going to work. And then the, the director said, but if you're working for us, your kids get free tuition. So I'm thinking, teaching license in my back pocket all of a sudden came out of my back pocket. And instead of writing film scripts, which is what I thought I was going to do in Brazil, um, I taught. I started teaching, and I never looked back. That's so. fascinating. I mean, you've been everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, uh, I, th I think most people at Dartmouth High School have no idea. You know, and the thing that makes me what makes me really kind of um, think about is when you're, you talk about your experiences is probably how dear the research paper is to you at Dartmouth High School because you've done a lot of that mm -hmm. research background yourself. Okay. Yeah, and I find it fascinating. And you know, and the thing that I always tell the kids, it's like, pick something that ticks you off. You want to write a good paper? Pick a subject that ticks you off. Because as you find things that support your side, you're like, yes, I knew I was right. And when you find stuff that refutes your side, you're like, you guys are a bunch of idiots. Right. And there's so much passion in, in the writing then, and the research is fun. So, yeah, I love doing that. It's my favorite part. Well, this next question is a loaded one, um, especially, uh, I think, for you, because you've had so many experiences outside of school. But um, what do you mean you have a life outside of school? I mean, <laughs> what are some things that, that you do to wind down relax I think outside of school? I think the main thing that I do outside of school that I do for me is I write. And so whenever I can, I get together with other writers. We go to retreats. 
Um, it might be at a house in Falmouth, it might be at a resort in Rhode Island, it might be over, over COVID, um, the lockdown, I was doing a daily write every day for half an hour with people from all over the country. Um, it was on based, Zoom? Yep, on hmm. Zoom. It was based out of Portland, Oregon. My sister was doing it. She's a poet. So she was doing it. She said, do this. It's half an hour every day. And it was great. It was great. We published a book at the, the end of it. And That's really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. So, so I everybody that. got on Zoom and kind of was writing while they were on Zoom. Yeah, we didn't share. I mean, a lot of the time when I get together, we workshop pieces. I got my, my um, master's is in professional writing and so my angle was a lot of memoir kind of stuff nonfiction and, and some fiction but um, and so we would workshop things and we were when we were doing the daily write there was no workshop it was just find a space get yourself out of the headspace of being concerned about someone breathing on you or touching something or bad news bad news bad news and just write and it was it was cathartic it was wonderful so I, I do that. that for me um, and what's something in this year's curriculum that you really enjoy teaching and why? Well, I mean, I just talked about the research paper. I really, I really love teaching that. Um, I also really like teaching Shakespeare. And it's, it's mostly because kids don't, um, they're afraid of Shakespeare. So many of them are afraid of Shakespeare. And I've had bad experiences with Shakespeare. So I start with just his background. And um, we talk a little bit about the controversy of you know whether Shakespeare really was Shakespeare, um, and I don't think that that really matters so much for them to enjoy the stories that that we get from from that body of work. Um, and then we you know I get them up in the classroom and they're acting even if they have a hard time reading two sentences together they're up there doing something they're the messenger or they are someone who just stands there with a sword. So I enjoy that. And probably the one you've taught most is probably Macbeth, right? Because you yeah. teach juniors. Yeah. It's one of my favorites, too. I love yeah. Macbeth. I just love the, the brevity of it. You know, it's yeah. the short, shortest play that he wrote, and yeah. it's full of action. And I think I told you, I've got this weird connection to, to Macbeth that I didn't know about when I started teaching. Do you know the story? No. Oh, you're going to love this. So I'm at a writing um, summer institute with Buzzards Bay Writing Project. And I get a, an email from my brother. He goes, hey, you know that play you teach? And I said, yeah. He goes, um, we have a connection to that play. I'm like, what? He goes, yep. He was, he was doing Ancestry.com. And he found that Duncan is our 32nd great-grandfather. Wow. Isn't that weird? That is fascinating. That's so weird. Yeah, and it, so the family line goes down through even Roger Williams. Huh. So I'm like, that's just so. I think I'd read somewhere too that King James, you know, who took over for Queen Elizabeth, used to claim that he was descended somehow from Duncan. So yeah. I wonder if you, there must be some connection possible. to King James in there too. Yeah, possible. Um, what do you find most difficult about um, remote teaching? You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I think one of the things that was really fun last year when the seminar kids first came in was how bubbly they were and how they played off of one another in the classroom. And you don't get that the same when you're doing Google Meet or Zoom. Um, they're quiet, their microphones are off at the beginning of class, so it's like you're talking to yourself. And 
the nice part about that is, you know, because sometimes you have classes where all they want to do is goof on each other and they don't want to actually get down to work. Um, but with some classes, the that the first couple of minutes where they're just settling in and and they're joking with each other and, and um, encouraging each other and stuff, I miss that. I think a lot of people don't realize it, but teaching is almost like a performance. And yeah. you know, when you're performing in front of an audience and you don't get any feedback from the audience, yeah. it's unsettling. Yeah. It's really strange. <laughs> That's right. What's a great book that you've read over the past year, or what is your favorite book? You know, I read so many books now. I, I found out late in life that I'm an auditory learner. I did not know that until I was an adult. Because I never liked reading, ironically, right? English teacher doesn't like to read. I didn't want to spend all this time. I, I read slowly and carefully, but it takes a really long time then for me to get through a book reading with my eyes. So when I was able to get first books on tape, I'm like, this is revolutionary. And then on CD, and then when they had the downloads, I'm like, bam. So <laughs> I, you know, I go through, I bet, 10 books a month. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, because I listen to them, you know, when I wake up in the morning on my way to school, while I'm leaving school, um, doing laundry, doing shopping, t walking the dog. I'm always listening to books. Huh. So um, one that I really, really liked recently was a, um, um, it's called Prodigal Son, and it's by the woman who wrote, oh my god, She's the one that wrote, oh my god, she's from North Carolina, you know her, what is her name, oh my god, I'm totally drawing a blank. And it's a, it's a recent book. Yeah. Um, oh my god. Well, there's Daniel Steele, I know you're not talking about that no, one. No, it's not Daniel Steele. She, she's, um, she writes a lot of poetry, she writes for the Atlantic. Huh. We'll have to figure out who that is. I'm, I'm yeah. looking it up here real quick. Let me take a second. So, Prodigal so, Son. Yeah, prodigal is it based son. on the parable? Probably. Uh, the Prodigal Son? Yes, in a way. So, it's let's a, see. I'm going to kick myself. There's Arthur Pink. Nope. No. Timothy Keller. Nope. Kathleen Lopez. Nope. Oh, you're getting all of those for Prodigal Son? Yeah. I'm surprised. It's all showing up. That's really crazy. Anyway, Seasonal. it'll come to me. But it's 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 a story with three different streams to the plot. Right. And she brings them all back to to together at the end. And it's just character-wise really interesting. One person is a is a forest ranger who lives way up on on the top of a mountain in North Carolina by herself. One is a, is a woman who's an apple farmer, and she wants everything to be organic, and she lives right next to this crotchety old man who's really conservative and pesticides, 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 you know, so they have this thing going on the whole time. But they care about each other because they're older and next to each other, and if something gets, you know, something happens to one, the other one's right there, even though they're politically so different. Um, and the third one is a woman who married into this Appalachian family. So she and her husband live in the home place, that's what they call in Appalachia, like the, the patriarch, matriarch, homestead, sort of, and he dies. 
And so she's from, she's from out of state, she's from the big city, and she has to deal with owning the home place and what happens with the sisters-in-law and everything. It's, it's, it's Sounds interesting. Oh, it's great. Oh we'll we'll find out, and I'll put it in the in the in the closing at the end. We'll yeah. find out who the author who the author is. You know, I love what you said though about um, uh, not really enjoying reading when you were younger, but becoming an English teacher. And I, I sometimes think that the best teachers are those who are skeptical a little bit of what they do. It always reminds me of um, the Scarlet Letter. You know, is it Reverend Dinsdale in the Scarlet Letter who who becomes more spiritual less he he believes sometimes when he's skeptical he becomes more of a of a believer um i don't know i think it gives you empathy too um yeah. you know when you have that perspective yeah because I, I came to english from the position of writing not reading right you came the other side yeah um what makes dartmouth special for you and what makes the english department at dhs special well dartmouth itself um it's the, it's the place that my kids call home. For them, this is home, especially for the younger one, because Ian was already feeling more like a citizen of the world by the time we moved here. But Zach was young enough when we moved here where he, it really felt like home, and we've been here since he was five, I think. Um, so he probably doesn't really remember much else mm -mm. than Dartmouth. Ian remembers all the different places. And it's still like really present in his mind. Um, but what I, it's also really cool for me to, I mean, being a family of, of immigrants, I mean, on both sides of my family, you know, we have different, different degrees of immigration, some from really, really old, like colonial, you know. Um, on the Fifield side, he was a, he was, the guy that came over was a, indentured servant came in through New Hampshire and on the Willard side that's the family that you know includes the Roger Williams connection so I mean these people lived in this area so it's kind of cool to run into people with my last name hmm. like I run into Fifields every once in a while or I run into Willards and I'm like well that's weird that is interesting yeah coincidence and uh, as far as like Dartmouth High it's this it's been a family you know, I'm far away from family. I've got a brother in New York, but everybody else in my family is back either in Minnesota or I've got a sister in Oregon. Um, but you know, you guys were with me when both my parents died and gave me that support. Um, you taught my kids and um, that is just something that is so special to me to know that they got this great education from people that I admire that they still talk about, I love that. Yeah, there's nothing better, I think, than teaching at a school that your kids attend. I think it just makes it that much more special, unique for you. Yeah, terrifying at, po at points, but. Yeah, you know. well, you're exposed, right? I mean, you're vulnerable yeah. when that happens. Oh yeah, I found out, I found out that Zach, <laughs> Zach, when he was in my class, he had, uh, I don't know what it was, a Twitter feed or what, but he, I mean, you can delete this, but he goes, he had one that was called Shit Ances. <laughs> I'm like, seriously, Zach? I found out about this this year. I'm like, thank you so much. That's awesome. <laughs> um, what makes an English class rigorous for you? Okay, I always have this vision in my head of here's a bar, here's where they are, and I want to teach up here. 
I mean, as long as you are asking them to question their assumptions, to question their um, I don't want to say parents, but to, to question things that, that they have taken for granted, to try to see outside of themselves and to better themselves, and if that means learning how to do a, you know, a nice, long, beautifully crafted sentence with proper punctuation and capitalization, awesome. If it's asking them to read a really difficult novel, like, like the Honors Kids last year when we read Sula. It's a, it's a great book, but they really struggled with it. So for me, that was, that was an example of rigor. When I asked them to turn things in on time, that's also rigor. When I asked them to you know, send me a properly formatted email and I send it back to them and say, this isn't right, do it again, that's rigor. And they're like mad at me, but they learn. Um, so extending themselves, right? Kind of yeah. moving outside of what they know, yeah. what they're comfortable with. Yep. Um, how do you manage the, the home and work divide? You know, English teachers are, you know, famous for having so much work to take home, grading. Any special practices that you have uh, that you, you do to kind of manage the stress and the work? Um, I'm really not good at keeping a divide. So, again, going back to, like, the research paper, when the kids get into that mode, where they, especially the kids that are um, not in the higher levels of, junior English. They are the kids in the CCR classes that struggle. And, and I'm asking them to um, do research using databases. And they think that if they put the same question into the query line, they'll get different answers. I'm like, no, you gotta change it up. So, you know, I'll get emails at 10 o'clock on Saturday going, I can't find blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm like, okay, so what have you tried so far? And then I'm like, just a minute, let me just, just give me a second. So I, I'll go on to, InfoTrack or whatever it's called now, Gale Resources. And I'll just try different words. And I try to teach them the different skills that they have in there about the, the, the different subjects that'll pop up on the right-hand side and looking at the graph that they have down at the bottom um, so they can see what other different buzzwords might appear in there so they can search on, like, that's what I wanted to look at. Well, you didn't ask it that. You asked it that. So. Um, I'll, I'll write down in an email back to them, say, okay, I tried these words and these words and these words and I got a whole bunch of hits. Try it again. And then, and then they often can find what they need. So you're the kind of teacher who gets an email at 10 at night on a Saturday night and you respond. You, you feel like you're, you're on for I, students. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not all the time. It's not like I'm you know, tied to my computer and I don't have my school email going to my phone ever because good Lord. I used to in no way. Um, but if, if I'm on the, if I'm grading anyway, you know, and I'm just hanging out, and that, that happened a lot during the remote learning last year, when kids couldn't, because they were working at a drugstore or they were working at a grocery store and they couldn't make whatever time we had set up to talk about something. I'm like, you know what, when are you available? Seven o'clock, that's fine. Let's, let's zoom at seven and we'll talk. I, you know, I wasn't going anywhere. Right. <laughs> you know, my kids weren't around at that point. And my husband's also a teacher, so it's like he gets it. He does the same thing. Right. But I try to do things. Like, for example, at lunchtime, 
right now, since we're eating in our own rooms, I'm like, I'm watching the British baking show. <laughs> I'm having lunch. It's like, I'm just getting my head out of here. I love the British baking show. I do too. That's one of my favorite shows. One of the most relaxing things to watch on TV. I know, right? And the new season just came out on uh, Netflix. Are you watching that right now? I'm watching one from a couple of years ago, I, I think. I love all of them. Those are such good shows. Yeah. Uh, you and I have a lot of, of similarities in what we like to watch on TV. Paul Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. Right? All right, I've got a set of either ors for you. So, um, Boston or Providence, and why? I would say Providence, just because I hate the traffic in Boston. Um, it's not that I don't like going to Boston, I do. But if I want to go to Boston, I want to spend like a big chunk of time up there. So I will like park at the Quincy commuter lot and take the train in or something, and then walk all over the place. But um, Providence has great, great. Um, restaurants it's got theater i love going to trinity rep love it miss it so much oh my gosh um it's got fire water if you want to do that i said that right right fire yeah <laughs> firestone um and it's got brown right there you know so you can go walk around thayer street and yeah providence is quick where boston is a day yeah you know that's just it um beach or pool and why? Pool. Sand in places you don't want it. That said, though, that's only if I'm going to be sitting on the beach. Like, when I lived in Puerto Rico, this was my, this is, uh, this is why I go to the dermatologist every year and have a skin scan. I would go on Saturday with my, you know, with something to read and my glasses, and I would, I would rent a Chase lounge right on the beach close to my apartment in, in Condado in San Juan, and I would roast myself. <laughs> And you'd get these guys coming up and down the beach at the same. Pina colada time, Puerto Rican party time. Buy their drinks on sea lady, how they do they. And I would buy, you know, my little Diet Coke and I'd be there for three more Diet Cokes and then I'd go home and I'd be like, you know. Oh, that's funny. Oh, it's just dumb. Oh, my God. Oh, my dad kept on giving me a hard time. <laughs> but, yeah. All right. Uh, Netflix or Amazon Prime? Both. <laughs> I have them both. I use them both. Um... I, I probably watch Netflix more, but you can't get some things like you can't get a man called Uva on Netflix. You have to go to Amazon Prime. It is strange how that's so different from platform to platform. Yeah. Automatic or stick shift? I learned on a stick. I love a stick, but I drive an automatic right now. Favorite type of music? Folk. Folk music. John Gorka is my favorite. Um, he's from New Jersey. Hmm. I should I should give you some of his music. He's he's great. He's now living in Minnesota though, and uh, he's got this beautiful baritone voice. He plays a bunch of different instruments, but mostly guitar. And um, <laughs> one of my favorite things, he, he comes to the folk festival here in the summer, and there was a woman introducing him a couple of years ago. <laughs> she goes. She goes, I always think whenever he sings, oh my gosh, I just ovulated. He's <laughs> <laughs> got that voice. That's hilarious. Yeah. I'm assuming that's a compliment. It is. He's, he's <laughs> awesome. He has great lyrics. I'll, I'll, I'll share some with you. I feel we, we would be remiss if I didn't somehow mention that your roots are really in Minnesota. I don't know if we ever really got to that, but yeah. that's, your, that's home for that's you, home. right? Yeah. yeah. It's... um. If you've never been, it's a really, don't let this year's politics make you think otherwise. It is a place full of people that are 
really giving of themselves. And I, and I always go back to those cold Minnesota winters. And in northern Minnesota, it's a lot of Scandinavians. That's why I look like this. Okay. Um, they, if they didn't work together, they wouldn't survive. So you get this, this, we have this idea of Minnesota nice. It's like Canada nice, because we're right up against Canada, right? It's true. I mean, you can walk into Target, and you're not, you can't find the kind of soap that you want. If you just think, wow, where, where's the lava soap? You'll have someone who doesn't even work there say, oh, I'll show you. It's over here. <laughs> you know, we do that all the time. We talk to strangers. We care about one another. Um, so even though I have lived here for, what, 20 years? Wait, is it really 20 years? Yeah, 20 years. That's still home. Least, you know, I have two homes. Actually, I have three, because parts of Brazil are home, too. So. And you could, you could still hear just a tiny bit of that... that Minnesota accent oh, yeah. in just a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Um, what do you hope a former student would say about you at your retirement ceremony? Uh, yeah, that's a hard one. I don't know, I guess probably that, the, that she cared enough. She cared enough. Because you do care about what you do. I mean, everything you've said so far seems to, to indicate that. What's a word that everybody should know? Gobsmacked is one of them. Um, brouhaha. That's the, I would always add brouhaha to the reading list because we never got to like unit 15 where brouhaha was. So I would always stick it into unit 10 because I wanted the kids <laughs> to know that word. Like, Extra points, brouhaha. Brouhaha is like a conflict or a yeah. scandal or something, yeah. right? Yeah. That was awesome. Well, that was great talking to you. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's edition of Footnotes, the podcast from and about the Dartmouth High School English Department. On a side note, the novel that Anne and I couldn't remember the name of was Prodigal Summer by Barbara Kingsolver. It was published in 2000. Send any questions or comments to Wilbur Higgins at dartmouthschools.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.